In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to continue our march through the Old Testament um, by wrapping up the book of Kings, which we started last time, and then we'll jump into the, to the latter prophets, starting with the book of Jeremiah. So we left off in the book of Kings talking about Athaliah. Um, you can pronounce that name a lot of different ways. I'm going to go with Athaliah, um, who was a very wicked woman. Remember that, that she attempts to eliminate and destroy the, the offspring or, or the line of David by, by murdering them, by killing them. But the baby Joash is hidden from her and his, his, his life is saved, which, which keeps the line of David alive. And I think when we read this story, it should remind us of another similar event in Israel's history. And that is when Pharaoh commanded all the Israelites' baby to be killed at the beginning of Exodus. So then Athaliah, then, if she's acting in line with Pharaoh, she's, she's acting in line and is characterized by the author of Kings as being one who, who's, who's standing fundamentally opposed to, to Yahweh, to God, and to his plans. So then... As we've seen throughout this study, then she, she could be characterized as an offspring of, of the, or a seed of the serpent who's trying to eliminate the, the promised seed of the woman. So this is not just, again, another simple act, cruel act of trying to attain political power, although she is doing that, but it's, it's more than that. It's a, it's a showcase of this cosmic battle that we've seen throughout the Old Testament that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And so if, if Athaliah then is, is the low point for the southern kingdom of Judah, as she almost eliminates the Davidic line, then, then the high point in the book is the reign of King Josiah. Josiah. So jo Josiah is a, a wonderful figure in the story. Um, if you remember to our last meeting, Josiah was the one predicted by the man of God in, in 1 Kings chapter 13. Who Remember, he, he, he went in there and ruined the, the wicked worship service of Jeroboam. Um, and so Josiah was the one prophesied there 300 years before. So when Josiah does arrive, he reforms and he, he reorganizes the the corrupt Judah on the basis of the Torah, on, on the law of God that, that he discovered a copy of in the temple. And we see this occur, occur in 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings 22, he found a copy of God's word in this event, then enacted the reforms that he would introduce. And Josiah's kingship is described in remarkable terms in the book of Kings. It's it's described as incomparable to any other king, even, um, according to Dempster, even including the great King David. He was by far the best of the southern kingdom kings. Josiah is described as a king that served God with everything. In 2 Kings 23-25, we see the word says there, Before him, it's Josiah, 
There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. It's a pretty strong statement, right, for this king. There's, there's no doubt Josiah was a great man and a great king in Israel's history. And Dempster points out that if we, if we just get in our time machines, we, we transport back to that period in history, then it may have been that, that Josiah represented to us a, a messianic hope in a way that previous Davidic kings did not. So we could say that, that during Josiah's reign, there may have been an, an air of excitement and anticipation of these promises actually being fulfilled in this messianic king. Could Josiah be the one who has been promised? Is he truly the Messiah king who will bring universal blessing to the ends of the earth? Is he the one? But, as we read on, Josiah is killed in battle by by the Egyptian pharaoh at the time, and his great reforms that he was implementing did not outlast his death. Um, His death ends the hopes of his kingship, and and after his death, we see Jerusalem plunge itself into further idolatry and then, as a result, further impending doom on the nation. And so finally, in 2 Kings 25, we see that, that Jerusalem and Judah fall to the Babylonians and they are exiled. So Dempster points out that if we, if we think about the themes of, of geography and genealogy, then this is surely a, a pretty bleak picture. The, the Israelites are in exile geographically, and genealogically there seems to be no hope in the line of David. Isaiah will describe the situation as the nation being a stump, a, a tree being axed to the ground. There, there seems to be little hope. But if we're keeping with the metaphor of light that that um, Dempster introduced last week regarding the, remember, the, the line of David being kind of a light in the darkness of the book of Kings, um, then by the end of Kings, that light has become something like a smoldering wick on a candle. It's still there, though, but it is very dim. But it's not completely extinguished. Because at the very end of the book of Kings, we learn something important. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who's, who's captured by the Babylonians, is released from prison in the 37th year of the exile. And we see that the king of Babylon speaks kindly to Jehoiakim and gives him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So it goes well, in a sense, for Jehoiakim at the end of the book. And Dempster and and other biblical theologians have have pointed out that we should view this positive ending as hope for Israel's future. This is the the line, the the seed of David. So the the light, the lamp of the line of David has not been extinguished. The line of David, the implication is the line of David will see better days. And so that is how the book of Kings ends. And the end of this portion of the historical narrative up to this point, with a, with a faint note, a very faint note of 
hope. And so this is the, the, the midpoint of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. And we're going to see now a, a break in the narrative as we move into the latter prophets. So this is what we just commonly understand as the prophets, um, which, which serves sort of as a, a, a commentary and reflection on what has occurred throughout this history of Israel and has future prophecies of a, of a coming messianic king and bright future as, as this messianic king's reign brings blessing to the ends of the earth. So it's a kind of commentary of reflection on what has happened in prophetic words of a hopeful future of a messianic king. And so we need to remember Dempster is using right the, the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, also known as the Tanakh. And in his understanding, the latter prophets begin with the book of Jeremiah, not Isaiah, which if you printed out the sheet, like one faithful participant has that I did a couple months ago. I have Isaiah first. Um, so I guess I should have done my research because Jeremiah is first in his ordering. But again, there's, there's a little nuance in, in several of these orderings of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but the big idea of Jeremiah is that he, he looks back on the, the, failure, the failure that has happened in Israel and points the way forward to the future. He looks back on, on the failure of the covenant at Sinai, which has led to, to judgment and exile. And Jeremiah then, he, he announces, we see in his book, he announces a new covenant, one that is better than the old one. Now, the most convincing argument that, that Jeremiah should be considered first among the latter prophets or before Isaiah, is there's, there's some linguistic and pretty strong thematic connections that are found in Jeremiah and the end of Kings. And actually, the, the very end of Jeremiah in chapter 52 virtually repeats the end of 2 Kings in chapter 25. And there, there's also conceptual, conception, or conceptual connections between the two books. So remember that the ending of Kings represents... The, the fall of, of the, the final blow of the covenantal curses that we saw in Deuteronomy. And these curses were brought down on the kingdom of Judah as the Babylonians, an enemy from the north, seizes Judah, which is also characterized in Jeremiah chapter 1. But remember, we also saw there was a seed of hope through through the Davidic king at the end. In the first chapter of Jeremiah, in verses 13 through 15, articulates the, the Babylonian enemies from the north and, and confirms for us that the events we saw in 2 Kings 25 was not just some accident in, in history or some pointless event, but the exile was a result of the Israelites ignoring the divine word for them. Ignoring God's law for them, or being disobedient to God's law. And this will be a major theme throughout Jeremiah and all of the subsequent prophets. That is, the, the, the death of Israel in, in the exile was not something unforeseen. 
but a consequence of disobedience. The death of Israel in exile was not something unforeseen, but a consequence of disobedience. And so we see many prophetic words that, that bear witness to the righteous judgment of God against his unfaithful people. And we gain more important insight that, that sort of sets the stage for the rest of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 1, specifically in verse 10. Which I'm going to read for us because it's very important, I think, for um, the book. Jeremiah 1.10 See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So this verse articulates from the very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry that, that destruction will be a main theme of Jeremiah's um, speaking activity. Dempster calls Jeremiah's ministry a, a wrecking ministry and a, min, a ministry of demolition, which is not the most encouraging of ministries to be a part of. So we see four of the six verbs that, that describe his task as a prophet as instruments of tearing down. Right? Notice he's, he's to pluck up or or uproot, to break down, destroy, and, and overthrow. The other two verbs, which are equally, if not more important, are, are to build up and to plant. To build up and to plant. So Dempster argues that these verbs imply a geographical context. So maybe something such as, as a plant or garden on a piece of land on which a, a dwelling, a, a place of dwelling, is to be erected. And, and Jeremiah's mission, then, is, is mainly negative of destroying that geographical location. But his ministry is clearly more than just destroying and uprooting what is bad, what is old, um, as the other two verbs indicate. He is also to build and to plant something new. So Dempster argues very convincingly that this, this sequence in the verbs shows that that event, the, the, the destruction that Jeremiah will prophesy is ultimately positive. It's ultimately positive since it clears the way for a new building to be constructed from the rubble of the old, to stick with the illustration of a building. So a new kingdom to be built from the ashes of the old one. And I think we'd be wise to, to just pause here and to recognize something. To, to us, this may not seem like a big deal, right? But we have to remember where in the story this is occurring, where this is placed in the Old Testament. Coming off the heels of the book of Kings, which depicts really nothing but, but wreckage for the people of God and the failure of the Davidic kingship. Um, and so we have to remember that there's, there's very little hope left for them. And this verse, verse 10, signifies that the destruction and wreckage the, the Israelites will go through is for a purpose, a positive purpose of building and planting something greater. 
Dempster goes as far as to say that these two words, to build up and to plant, set the agenda for the entire second half of the Old Testament, especially the, the latter prophets. Dempster writes, If there is destruction, it is simply paving the way for building and planting. God's no is followed by his yes. And so th- these two words, right, they, they thematically in Jeremiah, and to a lesser extent the, um, the other later prophets, um, these two words dominate um, the theme of these prophets. So any questions or comments before we move on in Jeremiah? Mm-hmm. Basically, his, his main argument would be the linguistic and thematic connections between Jeremiah and Kings um, coming right after Kings. But he also probably got it from some Hebrew Bible ordering that is part of the tr- that tradition. Well, I think I mentioned when I first talked about the Tanakh, there's not, there are several nuanced orderings of the group, those, those tripartite groupings um, of the law, writings, and prophets. And some order things just differently, just slightly. <laughs> so as we look at um, Jeremiah's commentary, as, as he reflects on the exile and judgment from God on, on his people's sins, we, we shouldn't be surprised to find that, that Jeremiah recounts something has gone terribly wrong with Israel. Right? This shouldn't surprise us, right, if we're following along in the story. In Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3, we see that there, there was devotion towards Yahweh by Israel when Israel was in its youth. Um, Dempster says this was like the, the, honeymoon, the honeymoon phase during and, and right after the exodus as they entered the wilderness. But, but when they settled in the land, Israel's love becomes compromised, becomes corrupted. And this is, again, it's very obvious to us as we've gone through the historical account thus far, right, in the Old Testament. We have saw story after story after story of this compromise and corruption. We have seen all of their, their rampant idolatry and, and wickedness before the Lord. But, but Jeremiah's commentary adds a new dimension for us um, to the story of Israel. We see the, the very word of God describe his, his own response to his people's unfaithfulness. In a sense, we gain a sense of God's pers- perspective on the sins of his people. And what we see then is that the, the Israelites breaking their covenant with God is described in deeply emotional terms in Jeremiah. And so in that way that we can see God's response toward his, towards his people is not one simply of, of, of like a, a legal contract, um, but one that is deeply personal with love and care being primary in the relationship between God and his people. So when the Israelites fall into idolatry and they uh, abandon Yahweh as their Lord and God, Jeremiah's words convey that the, the shock of Yahweh, the shock of God. We can see that in, in the famous verses of Jeremiah 
to 10 through 13, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Dempster points out that this text is, is typical of many in the prophetic literature and provides a window into the life of God. We see Israel is called to be a light to the nations, and they, they reject this privilege. They exchange their glory for that which does not profit. It doesn't profit them. And so Jeremiah uses this, this powerful image of, of this rejection of Yahweh by the people. The, the Lord says that they, they forsook God and ran to idols, which is like having a spring of, of a fountain of living waters provided for them and rejecting that spring of living waters for a cistern that leaks. That's the exchange they're making. A cistern, right, is a, is a man-made pool of stagnant water. I envision it being brown and gross. Um, not as good as living everlasting water, obviously. Um, and, and the people reject that fountain to have cisterns full of water, and these cisterns are, are leaky. They, they, they are foundationally broken. They don't even work for what their function is. The point is, they're worthless. They're worthless. And the Israelites reject God for what is worthless. And it's characterized, right, in the, in the Bible as, as bringing pain to the Lord, as hurting the Lord. And as we move on in the prophecies of Jeremiah, we see that, that as a result of this, of this turning away from God, the, the, this apostasy from the Lord, that God's people will be uprooted from its land. And the theme of geography or, or dominion is, is very present in this book. We can see in places like Jeremiah 4, verses 23 through 26, that, that Israel had been given a land that is described as a, as a new creation with language clearly echoing back to Genesis 1. And the Lord is saying, because of the people's unfaithfulness, it is as if the land has gone a, a decreation. So I'll just read verses 23 and 26, or 23 through 26 of chapter 4. It reads, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. So you notice those, those kind of decreation language. We see that, that there's a reversal in a sense of Genesis 1 here, indicating that the exile from the land is a, is a devastating blow to the Israelites. Where we even see in, in places like Jeremiah 7 and chapter 26 that the, the temple, the place of worship and devotion to Yahweh, will be destroyed as the, the city becomes a wasteland. Even the royal line of David in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 22 is, is threatened to be destroyed. So both temple, geography, and the dynasty seem to be doomed in these prophetic words from the Lord. But it's also important to note that this theme that we have seen throughout the Old Testament um, 
is, is present in Jeremiah as well. The theme is, is Israel's propensity to break the covenant with Yahweh at, at the most fundamental level. So in Jeremiah 17, we see Jeremiah articulate that instead of the law of God being engraved on the people's hearts, so instead of God's law being engraved on the people's hearts, the law of sin is engraved on their hearts. In that sense, the, the Israelites can't change their sinful behavior because it, it's, it's written on their hearts. It's fundamental to who they are. We see the, the idea of that we've seen before, right? The idea of uh, the necessity of a radical heart surgery in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9.25 makes reference for the, the, the need of the people to have a circumcised heart. We've heard that language before, right, in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, to have a transformed heart, right? There's a clear connection here to what Moses has articulated in Deuteronomy. And it's clear that in Jeremiah, just like the rest of the Old Testament, that the Israelites, and I would argue by extension all humanity, have a, a massive heart issue. It's kind of an under, understatement. Their hearts love sin. Their hearts are corrupted. They are devoted to wickedness above their devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord. So now all of this in Jeremiah is very bleak. And it can even make Jeremiah a difficult book to read if you're just kind of reading it devotionally. Um, but we, we need to remember that for Jeremiah and the Lord... This demolishing, this destruction, this uprooting is necessary for something new to come in its place. So consequently, we, we also see themes of renewal and hope in Jeremiah, of building and planting. And these are mainly found in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, where Jeremiah focuses on a, a glorious future salvation of God's people. These chapters are sometimes referred to as the, the book of comfort, or you may hear it sometimes called the book of consolation. And these are really very glorious and beautiful chapters in our Old Testaments. And what we see in this section is the promise that God will bring his people back to the land, and he will finally solve the, the massive problem we've seen throughout the story, the, the sin in the people's hearts, the, the wickedness of the people's hearts. God will solve the people's sin problem by making a new covenant with them in which they, they will receive a new heart that is able to keep and obey the law of God. So in this new covenant, the people will be able to, to serve God with all of their hearts and all of their soul. Dempster writes, what Israel cannot do, God will do. What Israel cannot do, God will do. And so we see the, the announcement of this new covenant most clearly in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. I think I'll just read it. because These are massively important verses in our Old Testament. Starting in verse 31 of chapter 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this this covenant is said to, to just... Notice, just look down, it's said to, to be, not be like the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. There's, the, there's a difference in some way. We could say it will be, yeah, different than the old covenant. The covenant will actually work, it will accomplish its ends, because now the law of God will be written on the heart of the new covenant members. Every member of this covenant will know the Lord will be in a, in a saving relationship with the Lord. And this will also be a, a, an everlasting covenant. And so this is glorious hope if we consider right the context of Jeremiah, the, the, the rest of the contents of Jeremiah. The, the doom and the gloom, the, the destruction and the tearing down. The destruction right is necessary for this new and better covenant to be implemented. And we know from the book of Hebrews, which, which quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in full, um, that, that the inauguration and the, the fulfillment of this new covenant is, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who, and so what we see is that never again will the seed of, of Israel be rejected of God's people, of God's covenant people. We also see at the, the end of the, the Book of Comfort um, the hope of restoration for the Davidic dynastic line. So, which again is spoken, the, the, the Davidic line, remember, is spoken mostly negatively in the Book of Jeremiah. But we can see this most clearly in Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14. God will raise up a righteous branch from David's line that will execute justice and righteousness in the land. So we can say that, that there will be a, a new Davidic king with, with the law of God on his heart that will now match the people of this new covenant community who, who also have the law of God on their heart. And in verses 19 through, through 22 of chapter 34, the, the Lord says that, that his covenant with David is, is as sure as the fixed order of creation. It's as sure as the fixed order of creation, as sure as that, that day and night occur in our life. So now obviously there's... there's, there's much debate on when all of these predictions and prophecies have or will occur, when the new covenant is fully established. Um, there's many questions about that that we're not going to get into. Um, 
Jeremiah says, in the latter days, which we have seen to mean mostly as a, an eschatological term or a term of the end of time, in the last days. But I'll just say that, that with the coming of Christ, who, who is the fulfillment of these promises, there has been a change and inauguration of these promises for the new covenant people. So I don't think these promises are just for some heavenly reality, but there has been a change in um, the, the new covenant people with the coming and death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, but, sorry I've lost my place, but not every one of these promises I think would be, has been fulfilled fully which won't occur until Christ's second return. But, but that's kind of all. We could spend a lot of time on that topic. Um, but that's where we'll end on Jeremiah. Any questions or comments regarding Jeremiah? I, there's definitely um, theologians that would interpret it that way, for sure. Um, <laughs> um, well, I guess it depends on your perspective. I, there's many. Let me see how I can say this. There's many interpretations of how the New Covenant verse here versus how it works out in redemptive history. Um, that's how we get so many of these different camps, like you might have heard, dispensational theology, covenant theology, and there's a spectrum within all of that of different nuanced positions. Um, I would say all of them are within orthodoxy, um, but generally here and in the Calvinistic tradition, we are typically more closely aligned with the covenantal um, understanding of how the covenants Operate, which is totally not answering your question. <laughs> but there, there is a. We might do a future study that will go into more detail of how do these promises actually kind of flush out in the new covenant era. I think it is important, but just for the scope of this study, we're just going to say this is what it says, and leave it up. Yeah, the salvation to the ends of the earth, to the nations, for sure, is happening in Christ. So let's move on to Ezekiel. Um, I've always liked Ezekiel. I found it to be one of the more interesting prophetic books, um, mainly because of these many interesting, I think you could even say strange visit, visions that Ezekiel has. Um, Dempster argues that, that if Jeremiah's contribution to the, to the prophetic commentary is marked by, by demolition and reconstruction in the future, then Ezekiel provides reflection not only on the exile, but also on the meaning of God's presence for the Israelites while they're in exile. So there's a big theme of God's presence in Ezekiel. And so we gain a lot of understanding on the presence of God and the implication that has for the people of God. 
Ezekiel is set during the, the last days of the kingdom of Judah and beyond in the period of exile. And just like Jeremiah, the first chapter of Ezekiel's call to his, his prophetic ministry is very important in understanding the, the whole book. And so what we see in chapter 1 is a glorious vision that Ezekiel has of the Lord. And I'm just going to quote Dempster at length here because I think he describes it in the chapter better than I can. He writes, he's describing the vision here. In the midst of a thunderstorm, Ezekiel sees a moving vehicle carried by supernatural beings, each with four faces and four wings. Four sets of intersecting wheels make this vehicle move in any direction. The fiery wheels' rims are covered with eyes. And this astonishing vehicle approaches Ezekiel, and as it does, he sees that it carries a platform upon which a human figure is seated upon a throne. Ezekiel is overwhelmed by the divine glory and collapses. He's resuscitated by God and addressed by what becomes his characteristic title, Son of Man, and then given his commission as prophet. So, very good paragraph summary of what we see in kind of this pretty bizarre vision, but it contains important themes that will show up again throughout the book. So Dempster argues that from this vision we can see that the, the message to the exiled people of God is that God cannot be domesticated by the temple in Jerusalem or, or even by the, the Ark of the Covenant. He is sovereign. He is free. His presence goes where he wants it to go. Dempster argues the vision suggests to us that, that God has abandoned the temple in Jerusalem because of the people's sins, which becomes more explicit to us later in Ezekiel. But, but the, this becomes kind of the, the major theme in the first part of the book in, in chapters 1 through 24, God's presence and God's presence leaving the temple, leaving His people. And so in chapters 8 through 11, we see another vision Ezekiel had where, where he's, he's transported by the Spirit to Jerusalem where he, he's witness to, to many violations of the law of God, including idolatry from within the temple itself, idol worship from within the temple. Um, this leads to the, the climax of the, of the vision where he sees the that, that same divine presence vehicle thing that we saw in chapter 1, leave the temple, in effect sealing the fate of the city and, and the people. God's glory leaves the temple. So the vision confirms that what we've seen so far in Ezekiel, that, that the exile from the land also means exile from God's presence. Exile from the land also means exile for God's presence for His people. So another thing we see throughout the book of Ezekiel and something we saw in Jeremiah is that the sin of Judah, um, of the Israelites, their, their sin is not able to be removed or corrected. I have a word, incorrigible. That, that's what that would mean. <laughs> not able to be removed. Their sin is not able to be corrected. So we see the language in the book that, that the people's heart and, and hard-hearted, 
that, that their people's heart is hard-hearted, stubborn like stone. We see their, their sin characterized as being worse than the surrounding nations. And so Ezekiel states in a way very similar to Jeremiah that what is required for God's people is nothing less than a new heart and a new spirit that will enable the people to keep the covenant. You can find clear language like this in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, or, or later in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. The, the people, in a sense, they need to be born again. They need spiritual transformation. But also, like, like Jeremiah, there, there's hope in the book of Ezekiel. And it is hope inspired by God's presence, which continues right the theme that we've seen thus far. And, and Ezekiel predicts another covenant, just like Jeremiah, a, a, a new and better covenant with the people in which God will give, give his people a new heart, transforming it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So you can see clear language of, of this in, in a place like Ezekiel 37, verse 26. But we gain some, some additional information about this new covenant in the book of Jeremiah that, that's not there, or in Ezekiel, that's not there in Jeremiah. And this can be found in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 59 through 63. And I'm going to read this. So it's giving us some new information. It reads, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord." that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. So notice here that the Lord says he will atone for all that his people have done. He's, he's in this new covenant. All of their sin right, will be atoned for. So this is the important development right, to keep in mind as we think of, of the new covenant in Christ and what he accomplishes on the cross. Probably the most famous story in the book of Ezekiel is, let me just ask, what is the most famous story in the book of Ezekiel? Dry yeah, dry bones. I think so. Ezekiel chapter 37. My kids love to sing that song. Is there a song to that? Yeah. I'm not going to sing it, but it's a good song. It gets very catchy. Um, we see this vision of uh, a valley of dry bones. And what we see in this vision is that Ezekiel is transported to a valley that is, is full of dry human bones, which would signify or represent how the, the exile is like death. It's death upon the nation, death upon the people. And dry bones, right, they're, they're worse than just bones. They're, they're really dead bones, really old bones. They're, they're beyond any possibility of life. They've been dead for a long while. And the Lord asked Ezekiel if these bones can live. Can, can, the, can the process of death, decomposition, decay, 
be reversed? Can it happen? And Ezekiel replies that, that only the Lord knows, only Yahweh knows, and he proceeds to prophesy over the bones. And the word of the Lord brings the bones back to life. Yahweh places his breath, right, his spirit in these new lives, and thus they, they are fully resurrected to new life. The people stand then as, as a huge army of the Lord. And so what we see then in, is, is a vision, or in this vision, is a mighty new humanity that is raised up by the Lord. Um, the Old Testament scholar Dwayne Garrett says, this is an amazing vision of resurrection and restoration for the Israelites, the people of God, which tells that the exile of Israel is not the end of the people of God. It's not the end of the people of God. And so right after this vision, we see uh, a new prophecy in chapter 37 that, that highlights the new unified kingdom of Israel that has been resurrected and given new life by Yahweh, being under the reign of a Davidic king. Of a Davidic king. And this passage and prophecy is in line with, with other texts in Ezekiel about Davidic kingship, which are very important in the larger story. We see in Ezekiel many references to David and the resurrection of David, of the, of the Davidic seed, the Davidic line, Davidic offspring. Dempster argues that this seed of David is described as one who will come to power through relative obscurity. So in, in a place like chapter 17, Dempster argues we see an allegorical passage of a Davidic descendant that is compared to a tender shoot on a tree or, or a twig is what you could think of, a twig that is plucked from a tall tree that is then taken to Mount Zion and planted, and there it grows into a large tree, bigger than any other tree, that bears fruit and provides shade for all of the other vegetation and birds. And so furthering the, the, the allegory, all the trees of the forest represent the peoples of the world. So God will raise up a shoot, a, a twig from the line of David that seems in, insignificant to worldly standards. But this twig, this shoot, will grow into a massive tree that will bless the entire world. Right? It's glorious picture pointing towards the future Messiah. Um, and when we see Jesus rise from relative obscurity. We also see in, in Ezekiel 34... Verse 23, that this later David, new David, will come to power, or that will come to power, is remembered for his, his humble origins as a shepherd. He will provide true leadership as, as opposed to the past leaders of Israel who are characterized as corrupt, um, destructive shepherds or leaders. Dempster points out that, that both of these descriptions, a shoot and a shepherd, echo Jeremiah's prediction of, of plant growth from the line of David, which will bring good shepherds and justice, right? The, the idea of shepherding will be good leadership, just, just leading, blessing to the entire world. And Ezekiel states that this will be um, during the, the period of time with this future Davidic king, 
It'll be during this time that a covenant of peace will bring flourishing and prosperity to the people, the people of God, and bring fertility to, to the land, which is described as like a, a new Eden in chapter 36. So again, more beautiful passages that, that point to the coming reign of the Lord Jesus. But not only is the, the Davidic dynasty going to be restored and to, the rule, to rule the land of Israel and bring peace and justice to the ends of the earth, but Ezekiel also presents the idea that the temple will be resurrected, which is pretty interesting. The book of Ezekiel closes with a vision of a renewed temple that, that dominates the Israelite landscape. And Dempster points out that, that before this resurrection of the temple, the land must be purified. So in a vision, Ezekiel sees a, a vision of Israel being attacked by a, a almost apocalyptic enemy named Gog in chapters 38 through 39. No one really knows who Gog is. I read a lot of different theories, not satisfied with any of them. Um, he's a mysterious figure. Um, but we see that, that he is an enemy. He's destroying the land. But the Lord comes and defends his people and destroys this massive enemy. Right? This, is, this is to be viewed in the, in the latter days, in the end of time. So many view this as an eschatological end times prophecy. Ezekiel then has a vision of, a, of the purified land organized around a new temple in, in chapters 40 through 48. We see a spring flows out of the inner sanctuary that, that flows into a mighty river that flows into the Dead Sea and actually gives the Dead Sea life. It, it, Dead Sea is now teeming with life because of this river flowing from God's presence. And on both sides of the river, there's, there's glorious trees and vegetation that harken back to Eden. But now Eden is enlarged to include the, the entire land of Israel in this vision. So now there have been some throughout the, the history of the church, particularly in uh, recent generations, who I think view this vision in uh, an overly literalistic way in the promises given to the nation of Israel and to the restoration of land. Some go as far to say that in, in this paradise, in this new Eden, at the end of all things, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, um, that there, there's some that think that the, the sacrificial system will come again as characterized in this vision. Like a, new, a new world temple worship. I don't think this is how we should be reading this vision. Like, like most... Um, apocalyptic literature or, or visions of the end times, I think we should largely interpret them as symbolic or figuratively because that is what the author is intending us to read them as. And if we think about the larger context of the book of Ezekiel and the emphasis we've seen on the presence of God in this book, I think we can conclude that this last vision of Ezekiel of this future um, paradise has an emphasis on the new temple and the new land to show God's presence as God's dwelling place being amongst his people in a transformed way, in a transformed, unique way um, in this new creation. So that doesn't answer 
all the questions, probably not even half the questions, um, about uh, the complications with this text. But if you're interested in it, I would recommend a book um, that I think gives a good account of a lot of different positions on how to interpret the end of Ezekiel. And he presents the, the, the best position, the position I hold. Um, it's called The Temple and the Church's Mission by G.K. Beale. The Temple and the Church's Mission by Beale, um, which is actually from the same exact series as Dominion and Dynasty, um, that biblical theological series. So if you want to dive more into that debate, definitely recommend that book. But to bring Ezekiel to a conclusion, we see that Ezekiel uses different language, right, than, than Jeremiah. and actually has a fundamentally different prophecies as he has visions given by the Lord primarily, but he has a similar analysis of Israel's problem, of Judah's problem. Dempster writes, the message is this, judgment for failure to keep the covenant was just, but there is hope for the future, a future resulting in the forgiveness of sins, the end of exile, a transformed land, and leadership in which the Davidic house will play an important role, rising from obscurity to worldwide prominence. I think that's a pretty good just summary statement of what we see in a pretty notoriously difficult book to interpret, Ezekiel. Um, but that's all we have for, day, for today. Any final questions or comments? Next time we'll jump into Isaiah, which is a wonderful book, and then hopefully finish. We'll start the, the book of the Twelve, which would be the Twelve Minor Prophets, um, which I think we'll, we'll finish next week. Anything else pressing? All right, we will see you guys next week.